Well, good morning. My name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to have the opportunity to do that. And Pastor Paul, our lead pastor, uh, is wrapping up a vacation, as Lori said this week. And so special request would love it if you would just pray for God to really refresh him and Wendy as they finish up their vacation today and they're back at it this week. And so we're excited to have them back. But I'd love it if you really would take time today and tomorrow just to pray that God would refresh them as they come back in uh, invigorated for what the Lord has in front of them. And I grew up in a house where sports were very important. And when the exclusive sports programming network became a thing, ESPN, it was a beautiful thing in our house. And that was the way that I related to my dad and my brother and I. We gathered regularly together and watched multiple episodes of Sports Center in, in a row. Even though we knew what was happening, we just liked to let it wash over us. And growing up, going to Mavericks games, living in the Dallas area, it was a big thrill for me. And one thing that was interesting is the halftime shows, some of them were a lot better than others. And so they would bring people out to perform on the court to keep your attention while you're waiting for the game to start back up in the second half. And one halftime show really stuck out to me, and I remember seeing them multiple times, and it was a group from China called Red Panda. And so it was a group of acrobatic plate spinners. And the lead lady rode a unicycle, and she would take bowls and flip them up from her feet and catch them on her head while riding a unicycle, which is everybody's life goal, I feel like. But she really lived it out. But then the rest of her crew were spinning plates. So they would use metal rods and get these uh, plates spinning, and they'd use their hands and their feet. And it was, it was mesmerizing because you watch and go, there's no way that they could do more than they're already doing. And then they would add five more or ten more. And it was mesmerizing because everybody wants to watch the point of possible failure and like how many can you really do? And I'm struck as we enter into this passage today, just as this graphic shows on the screen, that many of us are in this place today ourselves and we find ourselves reaching the end of what our own strength is. And we're trying to do things in our own strength. And some of us are here at the point where the plates are starting to fall. Perhaps that's how you feel. Maybe you've been trying to pay for your wrongdoing and your struggle by doing more good than bad. If I can just do more good things, a little more good than bad today, then maybe God will accept me. Maybe I'll be okay within that. Perhaps you're seeking approval and you're trying to frantically do more, be more, give more so that God or others would approve of who you are. Maybe when it comes to following the Lord, you are trying to do more Bible studies and more religious things so that you can say, surely, God, you'll see this part of my life and you'll be pleased with this, that I'm stacking up good things for you. And perhaps you've been carrying around so much guilt and baggage in your life that you've just given up completely on the whole thing. And my belief and my prayer is that in this picture, it's really important for us to see that instead of living a life trying to do things in our own strength, that God means for us to find our identity in place in him. And we don't look at a savior who's excited to see all the plates in our life fall, but we look into the face of a savior who paid the penalty for our sins. So we never had to spin plates in the first place. And my hope and prayer for you all week has been that God would give you that kind of freedom in your walk with Christ, that you would understand and know that, and that you could build your life on what truly lasts, and you see what you have in Him already. So I invite you to grab your Bibles with me. We're going to wrap up chapter 2 of Colossians here today in verses 20 through 23. And the title of the message today is False Change 
in the power of Christ's death, that there's things that we think bring about change in our life, but they really don't. And as we're going to see in the passage today, that God brings about great change through the power of Christ's death. So that's where we're going to anchor today in Colossians 2. So uh, you can grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you if you don't have one. We'll be on page 984. And then, as always, uh, in the Ridgewood Church app, you can open that up and click Media sermon notes and today's day and you can even take notes in the app there as well but let me read this to us as we get started and see what the lord has in store for us so verse 20 says if with christ you died if with christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations do not handle do not taste do not touch Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this entire chapter is speaking to us about not doing things in our own strength. And what we heard from Chad two weeks ago and Kevin last week all kind of fits in this same idea that Paul's really warning us and warning the Colossians, ultimately, that we shouldn't exchange our life in Christ for trying to do things in our own strength through our own self-discipline and religious rules and rituals. And I just would encourage us just kind of as an aside that this is God's word for us today, and we always want to come and hear God's word for us as individuals. And that's always our prayer. Lord, would you speak to each one of us today? Would you speak to me personally today? I want to receive from you. But I was struck in preparing and just thinking about us as a church. You know, we go through books of the Bible and we go verse by verse. And we want the point of the passage to be the point of our message every week because we really know that life is found in God's word. We want to receive it. And so I was thinking we are a community of believers. And so we don't just receive the word for ourselves, but we receive it as a community of believers. So consider that this week as you think about this passage and what the Lord's doing in your life, that he's also working in the lives of every one of us in the room. So just that was just an aside. It's a powerful thing to consider the way the Lord works us over with his word week after week, and it's a good thing. The depth here for us is the first thing I want to see and where we're really anchoring is the significance of dying with Christ. That we would know that when we die with him at our conversion, that it brings about powerful change. There's a significance to dying with Christ that Paul means for us to have. And so he's basically saying, hey, if in Christ you died, if this happened, then why? Why are you submitting yourself to regulations? If this really took place, then there's something more for you. Do you understand the more that's available to you in Christ's death? So there's a union we have in Christ's death that means that we can put away our religious effort because Jesus is better. He's our ultimate pursuit and we're going after Christ and that's who we're going for. One commentator on this set of verses says that Paul looked back to the time of the Colossians conversion, which he called their death in Christ. So that's what we're talking about. If with Christ you died, you became converted, you put your faith in Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And Paul looked back at that. And he called that their death in Christ. The false teachers, though, failed to understand the full meaning of that spiritual experience. And they didn't understand the significance of salvation and what's available to us in Christ either. So this small or complete, incomplete understanding of what took place tripped them up. And it oftentimes trips many of us up as well in that 
we say, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus died for me. I think I believe that in a mental sort of way. But have we really embraced what's available to us? And that's what Paul is warning the Colossians about. And an example would be if you had a membership to the best country club you could imagine. And it's paid for. It's totally free. You can go all, all inclusive food, golf, tennis, swimming pool, the whole thing, social gatherings. All of that is available to you and you never go. It's available to you and you never go. And that is oftentimes what we do when we just go, oh, sure, Jesus died. I kind of believe that. And then we move on with our life and we don't understand fully what he has made available for us. This idea of in Christ, we've talked about it over and over again throughout this book, and it speaks to our union with Christ. And Tony Ranke is a, is a Christian author, and he said the union with Christ is one of the most essential theological categories in the New Testament, and it may be one of the most overlooked. It's incredibly essential for us to understand that we're united in Christ, that our relationship with him is really founded and truly in him. So being united with him in his death and resurrection is the foundation that everything else in our life as believers flows out of. It's the headwaters, if you will, for everything else that flows through our life. Many people don't know that in the U.S. where the uh, Mississippi River originates. And in the same way that the headwaters start for the Mississippi River here in Minnesota, it starts with humble beginnings, that it's just a little stream and it begins to trickle. And what's important for us, and I think parallels with this, is that this idea gets run past so many times theologically and in our understanding of our relationship with Christ that we don't really know what's available to us in our union with Christ. It's incredibly important to us. And so in just in the same way that the Mississippi River builds and it's giant and it's forceful and it brings life, that's what our union with Christ is meant for us to understand that we would walk in that. So hear me and more importantly hear the scriptures saying this is incredibly important that if with Christ you die... There's multiple passages that are really meaningful. If you haven't read Ephesians 2 in a while, I would encourage you just to go do that sometime in this week. Just a beautiful passage, and it just says that that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We all were, and we've been made alive in Christ. That we're united with Him, that we've been made alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have been passed away. Behold, all has become new. That if with Christ you died... That's what's in front of us, what's available to us. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And he's working things powerfully out in our lives because of our union with him. So if with Christ you died, incredibly important. With all this in mind, too, Paul goes on to point out the inconsistencies and the brokenness of the way that we pursue other things. So we're just going to walk through that as we go through this passage a little bit more. The next thing that we see in the passage is that we're to embrace Christ over worldly wisdom. So he is our pursuit and we're going to embrace him. We'll talk more about how we do that towards the end of our time together today. But over worldly wisdom, over the worldly pursuits, we're leaning into who Jesus is and we're embracing him. There was a preoccupation with the world in Colossae, with the Colossian people. They were preoccupied with the world. I would submit to you, I think we could fairly say that that would be true for us in America today, that we can really get pulled off, of course, and things hold our attention more than Christ oftentimes. And so there's a couple things as I was studying that really stuck out to me that I think parallel um, our culture as well as the Colossians. And the first would be excesses, that the pursuit of luxury 
and comfort to the point where we're preoccupied with it and it takes almost all of our attention. And I think we see that in our culture for sure, that people are waking up every day. How can I be as comfortable as possible? And there's nothing wrong with being comfortable per se, but when when we're preoccupied with it, it takes us off course. I remember going to the Lazy Boy store a few years ago and I discovered that there's an extra large Lazy Boy chair. So people with giraffe legs and giant feet like me, they got me covered. And I sat in that thing and felt like it was a heavenly experience. I praise God for comfort in those types of ways. But if I were to fixate on that and that's all I were to do, then I'd be missing what God has for me. So the, the first one is excesses. The second one would be comparison. And we've talked about that some and how it's such a trap for us. We always are comparing ourselves to how do I measure up? What do I look like in this way? Specifically to this passage, though, and what Paul's really warning the Colossians against is a comparison one to another about spiritual maturity. So they were wearing their spiritual maturity as a badge of honor and they were comparing themselves and say, I think I'm a little bit more holy than that guy or this gal. Instead of looking to Christ as our identity and walking in humility in our pursuit of Jesus. So many times it's dangerous for us to compare ourselves. So that's what the false teachers were doing. They were prizing those things over Christ. And Paul's coming at them and saying, hey, uh, this is a true warning for you. How are you really going to measure yourself? What standards are you going to live by? And are you going to commit yourself to the things of Christ? Or are you going to submit to regulations? And then he's coming and saying, why? Why would you submit to regulations if this has already been available to you? So that phrase submitting to regulations in the Greek um, is really the question he's saying is, why are you giving yourself to dogma? So in the Greek, we would use that that same word dogma in our in English in the same type of way. Like, why are you being so dogmatic about something or why are you following dogma? Which is really essentially just why are you receiving and embracing a particular type of teaching or system? And he's asking that because it's pulling them off course. So the false teachers had constructed a way of life or a system or a metric that they were building off of. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks in and then wrapping up today in this little passage from verses 16 to 23, that that's really what's taking place. And the warning that's there for them is that they wouldn't sink into living in a fake system that's bringing false change. But they were preoccupied with that and they wanted to measure themselves in that way. And Paul's saying Don't miss this, Christian, what Christ's death has accomplished for you. Don't get so turned around towards other things that you miss what's available to you. So don't move on and run past Christ's death and what it means for you. And there's an intensity to Paul's language here all throughout these verses. And I was struck as I was studying it. There just really is um, multiple commentators saying that he's just speaking with intense language towards them. Because the gospel is at stake. Are you going to build your life on the externals and ultimately miss Jesus at the center? And if you're going to do that, you're on the edge of falling off a cliff and missing the truth completely. And we know that some did. They went in the direction of putting worldly wisdom in the driver's seat of their life and they ultimately totaled their faith. And some in our day have done that as well and perhaps You know people that you could think of right now that have gotten more fixated on doing religious things or they were majoring on the minors and focusing on secondary issues rather than keeping Christ central and it's caused them to walk away from the faith. Paul's saying it's really dangerous for us here. And I would submit to you with millennials and with those in the coming generations that oftentimes the reason they're pushing away from the table of faith 
is because they haven't seen life. They've seen people chasing rules and regulations. They've been seeing religious ritual in the preceding generations. And they go, I don't know that I've seen any life here. I see you kind of doing the thing and focusing on externals, but I don't know that I've seen life. And man, Lord, would you free us from that, that we would live in such a way that we embrace your death so that we could live out the life that Christ has called us to so that preceding generations would know and tell the wondrous deeds of the Lord. We need to take warning on that in how we walk with the Lord. Our good works, when done apart from Christ, miss the heart of the approval we already have in Jesus. That we're approved in Him. Another aspect that kind of hinges with this in this verse 21 that Paul's drawing on here is performance. And the temptation to perform and do things in our own strength. And so what makes it worldly is that our culture is so given to measuring performance that we're conditioned to it in sales numbers or state testing scores or college GPAs, credit scores. We're conditioned to it in how many people are attending our churches. We're conditioned to it in who did or didn't come to the last family gathering that we hosted. We're conditioned to it in whether or not we got invited to the dinner party or whether the people we invited came or not. We're just continually focused on performance and achievement. And this is why the gospel is so incredibly counter to this way of thinking, that we're wired for and thinking back for achievement. We want to go earn it instead of trusting in Jesus to earn it for us and that he did. Our default setting is earning And I love this quote from Martin Luther here on the screen. It says, religion is the default mode of the human heart. That's just fascinating to me that that years and years ago, it was the same thing. 1700s, that religion is the default mode of the human heart. It's continually true for us that we default back to wanting to earn it and do things in our own strength. That we want to be seen as good in God's eyes. And in order to do that, instead of receiving what Christ has done for us simply by faith, we want to try to win approval, constantly gaining and performing. The good news is for us, though, that in Christ, if you've died, if with Christ you died, you no longer have to strive. But the Lord did it for us, that Christ did it for us. And so Paul says here at the end of verse 21, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And it's in quotation marks there in your Bible because he's referencing dietary and purity laws that the false teachers were holding over their heads in that day. So they were specifically addressing those things. And with judgment and legalism, those teachers are coming at the believers and trying to pull them off, of course. Another part of this, too, that, it, that goes hand in hand with it in verse 22 is that we're to pursue the eternal over temporal That there are things that last and there are things that don't. And that we have an opportunity to choose and daily pursue those things that last in living for eternity instead of temporary things. And there was he's coming to them in verse 22 and basically saying, hey, you're chasing after temporal and things of a perishing nature. And you're putting that as ultimate. Like, why are you holding that up? Why are you pursuing those things? They were making a gigantic deal about dietary laws. And ultimately, those things were fading. And he's just trying to draw their attention to see that abstaining from certain foods isn't going to bring about true spiritual freedom in their life. It was deceitful. We can get focused on the wrong things and be pulled off course. 
And it's not productive for progress in, in their life in Christ or in our life as well. And I'm struck at how often we try to superimpose our own desires on people as though they're law. And we can sure get up into people's business trying to force our own way, can't we? And I heard a guy say the other day that he realized when he was growing up that when his mom was cold, he was always wearing a jacket as a kid. And now as a as an older man with kids, he said, I realize that when I'm tired, I'm trying to force my sons to go to bed. We try to push our own way and our own agenda onto people. And the thing that's really critical for us to see is that these false teachers had gone way beyond preference to really pressing down religious legal demands that weren't from God. And I think a great definition of legalism, that word gets thrown out a lot, a lot, especially in our culture. People oftentimes will say to Christians because they don't understand the life that's available to them in Christ. They say you're just totally focused on rules and rituals and you're being legalistic. But I think a good definition of legalism is requiring more from people than what God would require. Requiring more of people than what God requires. That's a warning for us to not go in that direction. The last thing we see is that we're to build on Christ over appearances. And it's powerful to consider all that God has for us in verse 23 here. Let's just I'll read this to us one more time. It says, and he's referring to the regulations and the human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul says the word, they have an appearance of wisdom, and he's kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, do you think that this is making you wise or that this is a wise way of living? But we know through the intensity and the tone of the passage that he really is railing against them to not go in that direction. And he's saying, hey, you think you have the source of true life by living these things out, that you're so good and noble and strong with the ways that you're living? At the end of the day, these things are perishing and they don't create lasting value. It's interesting to consider in church life and evangelicalism, how oftentimes we say, well, this is how we do it. Or we'll say, that's not how we do it. And we need to really ask ourselves, is it drawing us closer to Jesus? And are these things preferences that we're trying to make religious ritual and pressing that down on people? Or are they drawing us closer to Christ? And that's what we need to see out of what's here. There's three Pieces here to verse 23. The first is self, self-made worship or self-made religion, it says in the ESV. And it points us um, to the fact that they were imposing ritual over relationship with Christ. And so they had a particular way that they were spending time um, honoring God or spending time in their religious ritual. But it really wasn't leading them to more of a relationship with Christ. They were just going through the motions there. The second thing is false humidity. Humidity. It feels like false humidity outside today. False humility. Um, that word asceticism is a hard one to say, but it really is that you're focusing on abstaining from food or social or physical needs. And so they were really focused on fasting, which I'll talk about more in a minute. And the third thing there is the severity to the body or the harsh treatment of the body is really speaking to the false humility with the way that they were self-showcasing 
the way they were fasting. So if you remember, Jesus came to his disciples and said, hey, don't be like the Pharisees who, when they're fasting, they contort their faces and they want the whole universe to know how spiritual they are. And that was true for them in their day that fasting held with it a spiritual or a religious mark of commitment that look how good I am. I'm fasting. But Jesus said, no, go into secret and fast and honor the Lord and allow God to create a hunger in you as you fast. Let that be between you and the Lord as you pursue him and let that be what draws you in. Don't use it as a badge of honor or a marker of your excellence, but pursue him and allow that to be something that's specifically for you and the Lord as you grow in hunger. So is it drawing us to Jesus? I would just like to ask the question and really point out that do appearances really reveal the path that people are on? If thinking about building our life on Christ, do, do the appearance, does the appearance that we have really speak to what's inside of us? And that's what the word integrity means, that, that things are integral, that they go together and that your outside works match your inside heart and that's the opportunity for us if we're just living out of appearances as many of these false teachers were we're missing what god has in store for us there the last phrase that we see is that there's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh so are these external actions really going to bring about change apart from christ nothing will bring change to our hearts it's only in our pursuit of him it's in our devotion to him and the spirit's work I love those two songs we sang this morning that we're asking the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control would be coming out of our life because we've experienced what Christ did for us in his death and he's changing us, that the power of the Spirit is working in our life. In our own strength, we're going to be living self-indulgent billboards. We're just going to be walking examples of self-indulgence and self-centeredness. But in Christ, that's ultimately what changes us. So the phrase, there's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, means that they weren't being changed. They're not bringing about actual transformation. So how do we do that? If we're going to go forward in this and embrace Christ's death and what it brings in our life, how do we do that? So four things, just building off the points that we have today. Uh, The first, again, is to remember his death, that we would remember regularly his death and what that accomplished for us. The second thing is that we would embrace him, that we would do more than just give lip service or tip our hat to the Lord, but that we would embrace him. The third thing, and I was particularly convicted by this this week, is that we would pursue eternal things. So easy for us to just chase the temporal things and what's the latest and loudest in our schedule. But have we really allowed ourselves to be aligned with what God has for us and pursue eternal things? And then the fourth thing is to build on Christ just as we're talking about. And what that looks like is really simple is time in prayer, time in his word, time with other believers that we would really seek to relate to God. That's what building our life on him means. I love in considering what Christ's death accomplished for us. Romans 6, 6 through 7 was talking about this over lunch with a friend this week. It's just an awesome conversation about all that the Lord has done to free us from our sin. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That we would be transformed because of his death. That the body of sin would be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That there's a freedom available to us in Christ because of what he's done. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The Lord wants to accomplish this for us, has accomplished 
it for us and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's available to us. I loved hearing from a friend this week. He said, there's freedom in life for me in trusting Christ to help me overcome. He's trying to, to beat a particular habit. And it just was so arresting to me that he said, even in the small things that and it, when it's difficult, I want to get past this thing in my life. But there's freedom in trusting him. And I know that he's there. And that really is the opportunity is leaning into the Lord in faith and trusting that he's going to accomplish good things. The externals that they were chasing ultimately didn't lead to change. But Jesus changes everything. Next week, we're going to see what embracing our new life in Christ means for us today. I just want us to consider as we close here. That in the same way for the Colossians that they were identifying and needing to identify with Christ's death, that's what's for us here today. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads. And let's just sit quietly. We're not in a hurry here. And I want you just to consider what would it look like in your life if you let go of the weight of your performance and chasing down your worth in other things and really trusted in Christ? What would it look like if you let go of your own performance and just leaned in and trusted the Lord. Let's just sit quietly. The worship team will come and lead us in a song here in just a minute, but let's just sit for a minute or two and consider what it is that the Lord would be saying to you in particular. And with that too, maybe you're sitting here and you go, you know what? I don't even know Jesus. I want to be drawn in. I want to understand more. I have questions, all those things. We'd love to talk with you at the end of service that you would be able to find life today and and that it would be an eternal thing that you could pursue. So we'd love to talk with you afterwards, but let's just sit and consider what God's saying to us now.